Welcome to Church Meets World, a podcast from America Media about where the Catholic Church meets the most interesting and consequential issues of our time. I'm Maggie Van Dorn, an audio producer at America. On this episode, we are digging into a recent survey conducted by CARA, that's the Center for Applied Research and the Apostolate at Georgetown University. And the survey looks at how Catholics nationwide understand the sexual abuse crisis and how it's affected their faith. Sean, can you recall the moment when you first learned about the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report? Like, where did you hear about it? What were you thinking and feeling at the time? Was this, this was the the one that came out in the, the 90s, early 2000s, or? No, this is summer of 2018. Um, okay. Don't worry, Sean, you're not alone. There's still a lot of confusion among Catholics about the abuse crisis, and with good reason. The abuse crisis has rocked the church for decades, with a complicated timeline and an even more confusing set of players. Take former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. He was once thought of as a great leader in the American Catholic Church, who had helped develop a set of safety protocols following the 2002 Boston Globe reporting. Shocking allegations coming from the Catholic Church, and this time it hits real close to home. Former Washington Archbishop Cardinal Theodore McCarrick is accused of sexually abusing a teen nearly 50 years ago. Church Theodore McCarrick is no longer a cardinal. Pope Francis stripped him of his title over allegations of sexual abuse. And then, in 2018, we learned that McCarrick himself was an abuser. That same summer, the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report detailed over a thousand stories of child abuse at the hands of priests. After a two-year investigation, a Pennsylvania grand jury today alleged decades of abuse of children by more than 300 men described as predator priests. It detailed the accounts of more than 1,000 children, but said there are likely thousands more. The report released yesterday says the Catholic Church used what amounted to a playbook for concealing the truth to hide decades of abuse. Most of it had occurred decades earlier, but were made public for the first time in 2018. And it revealed the cover-up and mismanagement from church leaders. So when we're talking about the sex abuse crisis, we're not talking about one crisis, but two. Or what some have termed the twin crises of abuse and institutional cover-up. So it's not exactly an easy story to follow or to stomach. Here at America, we wanted to figure out what people do know about the abuse crisis and how they've been thinking about it. We wanted to see, are you hearing about this in homilies? Has this changed the way you give to the church? Has it changed your willingness to allow your children to participate in parts of the church, in the ministries, or in the church itself even? This is Carrie Weber, an executive editor at America Media. And she says that as we think about the crisis, we have to pay attention to the big headlines. But we also have to look at how this is impacting Catholics. And so we wanted to be able to take a look at some of the earlier statistics on people's reactions and responses in the wake of 2002 and the way people felt about it now and to be able to get a sense of, like, how are things changing? To do this, we reached out to CARA. That's short for the Center for Applied Research and the Apostolate. It's the number one source of Catholic data and statistics in the church. 
and they work in a very professional and mathematical way, right? They understand the stat side and they understand the church side, and they have a really unique combination of expertise that allows us to get both reliable data and reliable analysis. And that data has already been published at americamagazine.org. You can read the executive summary and our editorial entitled, How You See the Sexual Abuse Crisis. And of course, I'll link to those in the show notes. So in some ways, the data confirmed our suspicions. Well over 50% of respondents said that any kind of open discussions that were held in their parish were the most helpful in dealing with the crisis. But in other ways, it surprised us. Only 33% of respondents said that their parish actually helped them process the sex abuse crisis. You see, having the numbers is valuable. In fact, it's not sound journalism to speculate without any real empirical data or evidence. But how we make sense of those numbers, well, that's a conversation. So in addition to Carrie Weber, I reached out to two Catholics, Sean Yetter, who you heard briefly from at the start, and Sarah Larson, who you'll hear from in a minute. Together, Sean, Sarah, and Carrie have agreed to help me unpack the CARA survey and to offer their unique perspectives on being Catholic in a time of scandal. Let's begin with Sarah Larson. So in the summer of 2018, I was working in parish ministry in a group of parishes in Milwaukee, and I have been a Catholic my whole life. I have you know, always been really committed to the church, but I was a person who hadn't really spent much time thinking about or wrestling with this issue of abuse in the church. And I think I had told myself a story that is pretty common among Catholics, which is something like abuse in the church was really bad. It happened a long time ago. We fixed it, and now we don't have to think about it anymore. That was until revelations about Theodore McCarrick's abuse and the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report came out in the same summer of 2018. It was no longer a story of the past or something Sarah could ignore. I felt called to address this in some way. I didn't know what that would look like. I ended up leaving my job in January of 2019 after a few months of discerning about this, and I had no idea what that would be. I wasn't jumping into some other job. I just started writing a blog about this, reading, learning, and meeting with fellow Catholics and with survivors and with advocates and just was trying to learn and figure out what God was asking of me. Sarah went on to found a grassroots nonprofit called Awake Milwaukee. We're just a group of Catholics. We started meeting in my living room and kind of grew from there. So we're just Catholics who care about this issue and have discerned our own call to respond in our particular place and time. The group has placed the experiences of abuse survivors at the center of what they do. But Sarah says most of Awake's members are simply Catholics who care and who are wrestling on how to be Catholic in the face of this ugly reality of abuse. Which brings us to the first survey question. Are Catholics paying attention? What the data shows is that 57% of Catholics surveyed say they pay a great deal or quite a bit of attention to the issue. So that's more than half which is not nothing. But it still shocked me. Because like Sarah, I was gutted when I read the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report. And in my own attempt to understand the crisis, I spent the next nine months making a podcast with American Media 
called Deliver Us, which is a 12-episode deep dive into the issue. I will go in a Catholic church only for weddings and funerals. I still have my faith in God. I still have my faith in Jesus Christ. I don't have any faith whatsoever in the institution or church. He molested me, he molested my siblings, and I haven't seen him in 30 years. I think the challenge for Catholics is how do we still be part of, should we still love this community despite its flaws? So I'm admittedly biased. And I've had a hard time relating to Catholics who don't show much interest in the crisis. But what's more, this number, 57%, is very close to the 56% who said the same thing in a survey conducted by CARA in 2007. In other words, all the events of 2018 barely impacted how Catholics think about this. So what's going on there? You know, unfortunately, it's not really surprising to me because I think it's the reality of our short attention spans for this hard issue. So I'm pretty new to all of this just in the past few years, but my understanding is that, you know, many Catholics were paying attention and pushing and concerned about this issue in 1985 and in 2002, and then again in 2018. And each time there's kind of a sense of outrage and a desire for things to change. And then most people move on and stop thinking about it if it doesn't directly impact them. And so if you feel completely hopeless, what is the point in reading another story of bad news? And that's part of why Awake exists, because we want to say, yes, there are things we can do. We don't need to just pay attention because we need to hear more bad news, but we need to pay attention because it helps inform the actions that we can take. Good morning. My name is Sarah Larson. I am a In April 2021, the Wisconsin Attorney General opened a statewide investigation into sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. Sarah was invited to speak at the launch of the investigation. I understand the temptation to wish that this would all just go away so that we don't have to think about these horrible stories any longer. But the reality is that abuse in our church is not a problem of the past. So, Sarah, when the Wisconsin Attorney General announced that he'd be doing an investigation into sexual abuse in the church, you were invited to speak on behalf of Catholics, awake, Catholics supporting abuse survivors. And one of the things that you said was abuse in the church is not a problem of the past. Could you say more about what you mean by this? Yes. So I chose those words very intentionally because there are so many people that want to pretend that this is an issue that we don't have to think about or talk about anymore. And the reality is that we have done better with preventing current sexual abuse of children in the church. And I, I recognize that and everyone involved with the wake knows that progress has been made. So there's no denying that. But also that's not the whole problem. So I think about a lot of other factors that we need to really start dealing with. 
problems like the abuse of vulnerable adults and the systems that enabled abuse and its cover-up. The other thing we have to keep in mind is there are many survivors who have never reported. That's the reality for all survivors of sexual abuse in any area of society. Many of them never come forward. I know people who are making reports for the very first time right now. So we have to recognize that there is still more truth to be revealed. But not everyone thinks bringing up these hard truths will bring healing. After the Wisconsin Attorney General, Josh Call, announced the investigation, the Archdiocese of Milwaukee said it refused to cooperate, citing anti-Catholic bigotry. A representative from the diocese also said that, quote, having worked with abuse survivors for the past 30 years, it is the Archdiocese's experience that conducting an investigation like the one proposed here will not lead to healing. Rather, it will lead to the further victimization of those who have already suffered significantly. I asked Sarah what she made of this claim. So I'm not a legal expert or a mental health expert, so I can only speak from what I've heard from listening to survivors that I know that are wrestling with these issues and responding right now. And I will say there is one nugget of truth in that statement, and that is that this investigation is not going to be a magical solution that leads to healing for everyone involved. That's not, it's much more complicated than that. And it is also true that news stories about abuse can be triggering for those who have experienced abuse and especially those who are trying not to think about it and put it out of their mind. So those things are reality. But every survivor I have spoken to, even if they've said, yes, this will be painful for me, or I'm not sure how I want to interact with this, Every survivor I've spoken to has said, this is a good thing. This is needed. So given how complicated this all is, was were you at all hesitant to welcome the AG investigation or was it a no-brainer for you? We knew right away that this is something that we would support because we've heard from survivors how important this is to them. I think the hardest part is knowing that some people will think that we're against the church because we support this. And I think that's the part we really wrestle with is because the leaders of Awake come to this work because of our deep love of Christ and our commitment to the church. But, you know, the truth is that we feel really accountable to the survivors that we work with and that ultimately that's who we want to answer to first. And that's maybe who our church should be answering to first. So in that way, it wasn't so complicated. So I've been thinking, if you've already pressed play on this episode and have listened this far, I bet you fall into the 57% of Catholics who pay a good deal of attention to the abuse crisis. And maybe you're just as surprised as I am to learn that the rest of your spiritual comrades are not as attentive. Or maybe you haven't given it much thought until now and are wondering if the aim of this program is to make you feel guilty. I assure you, it's not. Something that occurred to me as I was listening to Sarah was that we have both cared a great deal about this issue, but we're also two people with theology degrees who've been employed by the church and have provided direct pastoral care for several years. 
The church is not only our spiritual home, it's our professional domain, meaning we've been entrusted and equipped to care for it. But that's not the reality of every Catholic. The church is meant to be a refuge for people who we know are fighting battles every day in their own lives. I'm sure for a moment, part of me considered, you know, is this scandal rearing its ugly head again, something that should make me really question joining the church? This is Sean Yetter again. He attends Mass at St. Boniface in Brooklyn, New York. And his perspective is so interesting to me, precisely because he converted in the midst of the abuse crisis. Yeah, so I am a convert to the church. I grew up Lutheran, and I think the only reason I was initially introduced to the Catholic Church was because my parents needed an all-day kindergarten, and the public school down the block had half days, and my parents couldn't do that. So I went to Catholic school from kindergarten all throughout high school, and I was always impressed by the intellectual side of Catholicism, but I was really attached to that brick-and-mortar church that my family, going back four generations, had been baptized and married and had funerals in, in Seattle. And then I started dating a, a Colombian girl, and pretty early on, she kind of made a joke saying, you know, if we do get married, Grandma's going to make us get married in a Catholic church. Sean didn't convert right away, but he did take interest in the faith and began diving more seriously into the intellectual tradition. And of course, there was the girl. And I was considering, you know, I'm going to marry this girl. I do want to have a unified family. And when I moved to Brooklyn, I could see these green patinaed spires from the balcony of my apartment. And I thought it was just a, a sleepy little church. And I had this feeling I wanted to go to mass in the morning. The priests were just wonderful. Their, their homilies, the, the way they celebrated the liturgy, it really spoke to me. And it was kind of a combination of the intellectual arguments, the fact that I was going to be marrying a Catholic, and then the priests of the oratory. Within a year, I decided, yeah, I've been on this journey since kindergarten, and I felt like it was the time. And I'm so happy I did. And I, I joined the church on Easter of 2020. So, Sean, coming as a Lutheran to the Catholic Church, you must have heard of the Catholic sexual abuse crisis. What were some of the associations and assumptions that you carried with you when you converted? Oh, yeah. When I told friends that I was planning on joining the, the Catholic Church, unfortunately, the, the sex abuse scandal was among the first, if not the first, among the first things that came up. And... I also understand, you know, why that is. It's this terrible crisis that needs to be addressed. But then at the same time, I guess I took a different route and thought this scandal is not unique to the church, but the church is unique. I mean, these sexual abuse crises are unfortunately like they're happening in literally every institution, public schools, the government, the military, like literally any institution you could possibly imagine is being rocked by these issues. Sean is right. The John Jay College of Criminal Justice studied this at length and concluded that the rate of abuse in the Catholic Church is roughly 4 to 6% of priests. And when you compare that to men in other professions that work with kids, the rate is the same or sometimes higher. But when Kara asked Catholics this same question, how common is abuse in the Catholic Church? 31% believe that Catholic priests are more likely than men in other professions that work with children to commit acts of sexual abuse. 
24% believe priests are less likely to do so, and 45% believed both groups are equally likely to do so. So according to the Caris survey, Catholics think abuse is more common in the church than what the science tells us. But this isn't the only misconception among Catholics. Kara asked a series of questions to gauge Catholics' understanding of the scope of allegations. Not only do few adult Catholics understand the facts of the sexual abuse crisis, but Kara noted that these misconceptions have grown worse over time since they first polled Catholics in 2007. So, for instance, Kara asked, To the best of your knowledge, when were instances of sexual abuse of minors by Catholic priests in Pennsylvania more common? Before or after the year 2000? Or are the rates about the same? Do you know the answer to that question? Absolutely no idea. Even for Sean, who knew with certainty that the rates of abuse in the church were on par with other institutions, the timeline remains unclear. From the stories I've read in the media, it seems like they focus on stories that happened prior to 2000. I'm just not sure if those are the stories that have come out. I sure hope there's not more stories after 2000, but I really couldn't say. Then again, Sean raises a critical question. If it sometimes takes decades for survivors to report abuse, can we safely conclude that the frequency of abuse has gone down since the year 2000? One of the major issues is the cover-up, right? Here's Carrie Weber again. So I think there's a lot of people who think, sure, we say there's not enough statistics now, but, you know, maybe in 20 years, a bunch of people talk about their experience of the early 2000s or the, you know, 2010 to 2020, and this comes out and there's more and we just don't know about it yet. What we do know is that since 1985, well over 30 years ago, we've seen a precipitous decline in cases. And we know the church has implemented extensive safety protocols since 2002. If you're curious to learn more about these measures, check out episode four of the Deliver Us podcast. But what Carrie is pointing out is not how things are, but how they're perceived to be. But I think a lot of people might assume that a church that has previously covered up things is still doing so. And the church needs to work to gain that trust back through greater transparency. So... Do you have any ideas about what caused or contributed to the sexual abuse crisis in the Catholic Church? I don't really have that many personal opinions of what could have caused it specifically in the Catholic Church. It's a tough question. And Sean's answer matches the most popular response in the CARA survey. 23% of Catholics said they simply don't know what leads someone to commit sexual abuse of a minor. Now, the second most common response, 22%, referred to celibacy, sexual abstinence, and the inability of priests to marry as a cause of the crisis. Now, while it's a popular theory, most data scientists have concluded this just isn't true. Still, celibacy is such a foreign concept to so many people not living celibacy through the priesthood or religious life that a lot of people remain suspicious of it. One of the most beautiful articulations of celibacy comes from Patty Gilger, a Jesuit I interviewed for Deliver Us, Episode 2. 
So I thought, given how much misunderstanding there is around celibacy, it might be helpful to revisit that conversation here. I do not understand how it would be possible for me to give my heart fully to a wife and to children and give my heart fully to the people of God in a parish or other setting. Mm. I only know the one side of this, and I don't want to pretend to have any more knowledge than I do of that. I know what giving my heart in this way has cost me, how much it hurts, and I know how good it is, how much I love uh, a lot of people, a lot of people and how I'm able to be involved in their lives in particularly intimate ways because of the trust that they can give me in this way. Celibacy is a sexuality. Huh. It's a practice of sexuality. Can you say more about that? Yes, yeah. Uh, celibate chastity is a practice of sexuality. It is not repression. It's a way of channeling the desires that sexuality itself is oriented towards intimacy, procreation, love, union. This gets channeled in a different way. Yeah. I think often people assume that sexuality is referring to sexual intercourse, sure. sex itself. Yeah. But you're saying that sexuality might actually be this range of desires um, around intimacy and vulnerability and community and that there is a way to direct them that yes. doesn't necessarily involve sex. No, no. Now there is a loss because sex itself is a gift. There is an abstinence there, an abnegation that does create pain, loss, sacrifice. Those things are all present there. Of course they are, right? But uh, I certainly do not think this, but just to say for anyone who thinks that celibate chastity is the only way that abnegation is involved with sexuality that's a ridiculous joke like that's a joke right because we all are sacrificing parts of our of our sexuality especially if we're in a committed monogamous relationship 100 percent, 100 percent. and couples persons who are living their sexuality well will experience very similar analogous deeply painful, deeply beautiful tensions with regard to the challenge of abnegation to their sexuality that they're called to. Yeah, because they've, they've taken vows to one another. Exactly. Now, while Patty offers a great portrait of celibacy, not as an unhealthy repression, but as a different expression of sexuality, this doesn't close the conversation. You can defend celibacy and still acknowledge that listening to non-celibate expertise like that of lay Catholic parents, could have mitigated the crisis, especially how the church dealt with it. It's not that single people or that priests cannot consider children, but there's something about being a parent, I think, that just any situation involving children, something in your head just sort of snaps and is like, okay, I'm on alert. I'm on alert for this kid. This kid isn't even mine, but I'm watching them now, right? Like, I'm making sure that this kid is okay. There's something in your brain that like switches when you become a parent and you become hyper aware of like children all the time. And in like every situation, they see things that children might need or places where children might be in danger. 
that because of their own lived experience that would apply to children across the board in the church and that could benefit the church at large. China has more than 200 confirmed cases of coronavirus, it's called, which produces pneumonia-like symptoms. The risk for all of us of becoming infected will be increasing. I also directed the Department of Health to declare a public health emergency. There is no doubt that there will be more cases. Even as someone who's been deeply invested in this issue, I have to say that when COVID-19 hit, it felt like the oxygen was sucked out of the room. Most of us were just trying to figure out how to adjust to life in quarantine. So thinking about one crisis after another seemed impossible. Sarah had a similar experience. It just didn't feel like the right time to ask people to think about and engage with a really hard issue when everyone was mentally overwhelmed and spiritually lost. So we definitely slowed down a little bit during that time and then kind of rebooted when we all had our feet underneath us. And then there was the murder of George Floyd. For Sarah, who lives in Minnesota, where George Floyd was killed, this hit close to home. And she even put some of her work with Awake on hold to advocate for racial justice. But what Sarah found was that the two issues she cared most about, racial healing and justice for survivors, they had a lot in common. I was at an event and a speaker was talking about looking around at all the white people there, you know, as a, a black speaker, and saying, we need you to do something. He wasn't saying you need to get up here and take the microphone. He was saying, it's your job to get into your communities and do this work if you want to really be in solidarity with us. And it makes me think of an abuse survivor who spoke at one of Awake's events who said in response to the question, what do you want from Catholics? What can Catholics do? And she said, you need to stop making survivors do all the heavy lifting. She said, we're the ones who always have to fight. We're the ones who have to keep on standing up. And we need allies. We need people who are going to listen to us and let us lead, but also do some of the work. We need to create a culture of allyship or even just friendship. It's the glue that holds communities together. And it also makes these giant, monstrous problems less daunting. I do think a lot of people have that sense of hopelessness and feeling very alone. Even the people who are, you know, not considering leaving the church, but just wrestling with this internally, many of those people I've found don't feel comfortable talking about it. They don't know if anyone else in their parish cares. They don't know if they bring it up at their Bible study, what someone would say. And so part of what I think we need to do as a church is normalize conversation about this and say, you know, we can talk about this. The reason that so many Catholics have disengaged from the abuse issue is not because they don't care. If anything, some of us care too much. It makes our blood boil and our stomachs turn. And at the same time, most of the stories we read about today are about ecclesial mismanagement. And like so many other systemic problems, it can feel intractable and beyond our personal ability to do anything. And that's actually true. No single person can or should bear the weight of this crisis individually. To be perfectly honest, this has been much harder than I ever could have imagined. When I said yes to 
this call, I had no idea how much it would hurt and how much it would break my heart. And yet, every person I have spoken to who has been called to respond to the crisis tells me the same thing. We're not meant to go it alone. This work has been so beautiful because I've had the opportunity to learn from the witness, the hope, the faith of people who have been so deeply harmed and yet fight for their faith, fight for hope, fight for healing in their own lives. And that continues to inspire me as someone who I get discouraged sometimes. But I also look at those who are continuing this fight and saying, you know, I need to be there with them. So in a lot of the secular news around the crisis, there is this dominant idea or suggestion that the recent decline in church membership is a direct consequence of the abuse crisis. Like, we're hemorrhaging members because people are so disenchanted with the church. What the survey revealed is that might not be the case. Only 4% of those surveyed cited the abuse crisis as a reason that they left. So this raises two questions for me. One, if Catholics aren't leaving because of the abuse crisis, why are they leaving? And then secondly, You know, what can we learn about the profound nuances of religious identity and affiliation that might not be captured in a lot of secular reporting? Yeah, I mean, I think the reasons, there are probably as many reasons uh, for people to leave the church as there are people who have left the church. A lot of the statistics that we see show how personal people's experience with the church is and how local it is. So it a lot has to do with your particular parish, your particular pastor, the people in the church who are closest to you and how they treat you. It's a good reminder as Catholics that how we treat each other as individuals has real concrete effects on how many people are willing to be individuals in this church. This, of course, is something I think most of us have known for a long time. The late Catholic sociologist, Father Andrew Greeley, wrote in his book, The Catholic Imagination, that most Catholics don't leave the church because they disagree with doctrine. They leave because they've suffered a pastoral insensitivity. And in fact, when Kara asked respondents why they'd left the church, if at all, 21% expressed a loss of interest. But the second biggest reason 17% cited hypocrisy or disappointment in the church. Hypocrisy can happen on the macro level of bishops and policymakers, but it's sometimes more disturbing when we see it up close among those we know and trust. But if that's the case, it's also true that we can be bolstered in our faith and renewed in our hope by the presence of others, not least of which is the Holy Spirit. If I believed this was something that we as human beings were going to have to figure out and fix on our own, I don't think I could do it. But if we believe that the Holy Spirit is moving and doing something in the church and we are invited to be part of that, and if we believe that we are following a God who is always on the side of truth and justice and healing, 
then I feel more encouraged and inspired because it's God's work that we're just trying to be part of. And I don't think I would be able to do this work without that conviction. And that does it for this episode of Church Meets World. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you'd like to read the full results of the CARA survey and some additional commentary, there's an executive summary and a lot of great articles from America that I will link to in the show notes. To hear future episodes, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. And if you've enjoyed this episode, I'd encourage you to share it with a friend, a family member, a colleague. It's really the best way to spread the word about the show. Church Meets World is a production of America Media. This episode was written and produced by me, Maggie Van Dorn, and engineered by Frank Tucson. The best way you can support the show and all the work we do here at America is through a digital subscription, which you can get at americamagazine.org slash subscribe. Thank you for all of your support.